0: Well, again, this is our first Sunday of the year, where we have sort of made a pattern the last couple of years to um, go through and explain a theme for the year. So do you remember what last year's theme was? Sanctuary. Sanctuary. Very good. Big question. Do you remember what two years ago was? Yes. Excellent. Biggest question. Do you remember what three years ago was? No. Okay. It was there was one, actually, yes. It was Christ-centered living, right? Then you all go, oh, yeah, 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 right, right, right. Good. Well, this year it is equip is the word that we're focusing on. And um, kind of for the uh, sermon slide, um, have expanded that into this bigger thought of being equipped by God. What is it that God has equipped us for? Um, the plan originally was to have Ross come and do this first section of the sermon, um, but he's still struggling with some vertigo, so please continue to pray for Ross as he needs healing in that regard. Um, but I get to do something I've never done before, which is preach a sermon that somebody else wrote. Um, so I, I don't think it's plagiarism as long as I tell you beforehand that this is all Ross's work, his study, and um, any quotations or any likeness to any sermon that he would preach before is purely coincidental. No, it's not coincidental. It's all planned. But um, we, we've divided up this theme into four sections. And after I'm done, David's going to come up. Um, and then after that, Nathan and then Tim. But the four sections we've divided it up to, if you'd like to keep notes or keep track, is holiness, worship, fellowship, and ministry. Holiness, worship, fellowship, and ministry. The idea being, how has God equipped us for these four things? What has God done in order to help us in these areas? Now, the other sort of delineation of these four things is, there's a relational aspect as well. So when we talk about holiness, which I'm going to open up with, we're talking about our our personal growth in Christ. Our growth in Christ's likeness Our growth in being set apart for him and less set apart for the world. So how has God equipped you in your personal holiness? Then, of course, how has God equipped you for worship, your relationship with God? In one sense, every bit of your life in Christ is a matter of worship. Thirdly, then, how has God equipped you for fellowship? What has he given you to work alongside and live alongside brothers and sisters in Christ? Lastly, then, how has God equipped you for ministry? What is it that he's given you? Now, in a lot of ways, we can answer all these questions with the simple two-part Sunday school answer. He's given us his word, and he's given us his Holy Spirit. Sermon over. Trust in those two things. You'll be fine, right? If nothing else, get that. If you want to be holy, if you want to be equipped for holiness, if you want to be equipped for worship, equipped for fellowship, and equipped for ministry, trust in the Holy Spirit. Look to his word. And that's even why the first part of the sermon was kind of in the announcements this morning. How will you be equipped with God's word? Because he's made it available to you. How will you then therefore equip yourself this year? Do you have a plan? It's good to have a plan. Sometimes those plans fail. That's okay. My Old Testament reading plan, goodness. If you want to know how bad I did at that this year, just ask me. I'm, I have enough shame, at least, to not go into all the details from here. But I will tell you, in a one-on-one conversation, I did not make it through the Old Testament in 2022. I did make it through the New Testament. So, happy about that. But, more importantly, are we accessing what God has offered to us and equipped us with in order to engage in these areas of life? So, personal holiness. Ross says, we might fumble a bit if we're asked, what is holiness? What is holiness? And even ask you then, in, in the place of your heart, what is the answer to that question? What is holiness? He says that in Hebrew, the word Kadesh and Greek Hagios, biblical words, have a similar meaning meaning apartness, sacredness, separate, pure, or set apart. In addition, this word, particularly in the Hebrew, has the idea of cutting something. So you could even kind of go back to the beginning with Abraham and think about circumcision. And why was it? Why was this weird procedure done, prescribed by God for Abraham, to say, this is the way I'm going to mark you as my people. All of the males in your family will be circumcised. That seems weird, God. Why is that? Well, part of it has to do with that matter of cutting, as a matter of holiness, being set apart to God. God first spoke of something being holy in Genesis when he consecrated the seventh day as a Sabbath. It's kind of interesting. First matter of holiness being a day. It was set apart from the other days as special. So we see this in the creation account, right, in Genesis chapter 1. What is it that God did on the seventh day? He rested. Why? Because our God is weak, and he needed a break, and he... No, not at all. Why has God set apart a day for rest, but for a pattern for us to follow? Interestingly enough, when the Son of God takes on human flesh, he then is required to rest, right? He then is limited in his abilities in this world. Fascinating. If we were to try to come up with an opposite meaning to holiness, though, a good one might be worldliness, which is common, secular, and spiritually shallow. It's a matter of including all the temptations of the flesh and the mind. Whereas John puts it in 1 John, the lust of the eyes, do you remember what the other ones are? Lust of the flesh and the pride of life. That's right. Thank you. Sometimes I ask to see if you're paying attention, and sometimes I ask because it's off the notes, and I want to make sure I get it right. So thank you for helping me. <laughs> so the Apostle Peter addressed personal holiness in First Peter one. I might encourage you to turn there as well. First Peter chapter one and verses fourteen through sixteen. First Peter chapter one. Verse 14 through 16. He writes, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 14 through 16. This is, of course, in reference as well, all the way back to the book of Leviticus in chapter 11 and verse 44 and 19, verse 2, wherein God repeats to his people, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Our personal holiness is in direct connection to the holiness of God. Why should you be holy? Because the God whom you claim as your Lord and Master is himself holy as well. If we look at the arrangement of the tabernacle in the Old Testament, we see that the lack of holiness prevented men from coming into the presence of God. This is done away with today since we approach God on the basis of Jesus' blood and sacrifice in our stead. So when he says this matter of the lack of holiness, he's talking about a set-apart place, the tabernacle which eventually became the temple, which is ultimately just a picture of Christ because he himself is the temple. If you remember in our study of John earlier on, Jesus looks at the temple and says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And John says he was actually talking about the temple of his body. And it was really interesting. I was listening to a sermon just this past week, and he pointed out that Jesus intentionally wanted them to get confused about whether he was talking about his own body or the physical building of the temple. Because in the biblical perspective, they are one and the same. The idea of the temple, the idea of God being with us, what we celebrate at Christmas time Jesus is the true temple. Hebrews 12, 14, the author says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Strive for peace with everyone, yes, but that verb of strive connects again to the later part of that verse. Strive for holiness. Holiness is not just something that's going to happen. The Lord expects us to strive for holiness in our lives. Not as the working by our own power, of course, Right? We're working by the power that he equips us with. That what we have, what we need for holiness, he has provided for us in Christ. Further down in verse 16 of Hebrews chapter 12, he writes that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. God's intention for his people then is to be a holy people, not a people that, is, that are so focused on earthly things. That's where this Esau reference comes from. Do you remember when he came in from the field and goes to his brother and says, just give me a bowl of that soup. If I don't eat, I'm going to die. Super dramatic, right? And Jacob takes advantage of his stupidity, takes his birthright. We should not be those who trade off spiritual blessings and our own personal holiness, for advancements in this life. Jesus says in Matthew 5, verse 8, Blessed or happy are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This matter of holiness connects to a matter of purity as well. You remember that the priests had to be purified in order to go into the temple, in order to act out the worship that was prescribed by God in the Old Testament. And Jesus says that in our hearts is where the matter of purity is most importantly settled our hearts being pure, not to say that we are sinless, but to say that our relationship with sin is different because of the holiness that we have in our God. Holiness is a heart issue that the Holy Spirit works in us over time. It's not an instant thing. Now, interestingly enough, we are positionally righteous in Christ, right? Positionally. And we are holy in that we are sanctified for him. That is both a true statement and a progressive statement. We're growing in our righteousness, our right standing with God, as we act less according to sin and more according to rightness with God. And we're also growing in holiness at the same time. This all happening because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, activating the truth of God's word in our hearts. The Lord, by his Spirit, convicts us of sin. He brings us to repentance and confession of sin. He sends us to the cross for God's mercy through Jesus. And we then live a progressively changed life that is more pleasing to God since we are becoming more like Jesus. Now, you're standing, amazingly, you're standing before God is so secure that you are, Paul says, accepted in the beloved. When you have your worst spiritual day, your most unholy day, God still looks at you and says, I see you as clothed with the perfect holiness, righteousness, and purity of my Son. Our job then in personal holiness is to strive to allow this progressive change to happen in us. To work alongside, to work in step with what the Spirit is doing in and through us. Even when it hurts, Ross says here. Hebrews 12, 10 again. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. The author of Hebrews tells us we don't enjoy discipline, right? We don't like it. We don't look forward to it. But it is for our good that we might be holy, sharing in the holiness of Christ. Tasting God's grace should intensify our longing to actually reflect the beauty of his holiness in our character. This is sort of, again, if I can go off script here, this is sort of what happens on Sunday mornings for me, I notice. A lot of my struggles in coming in with a pure heart and with a holy mindset for worship seem to fade away when I read some of these words that we're singing. I go, yes, I do love to tell the story. I can't wait to tell the story. It's so wonderful to recall what Christ has done for us. But that taste of God's grace shouldn't end with a matter of appreciation, but a matter of devotion. A matter of devotion to strive for holiness, knowing with all certainty that Christ is working in us and through us. And so Paul writes in Philippians to work out our salvation in fear and trembling because God is work at work in us. Holiness is not the way to Jesus, Ross says, but rather knowing Jesus is the path to holiness. So are we equipped for holiness? Yes. Do we have everything we need to live a holy life? Absolutely. But it's not as though we are going to find Jesus through our holiness. but Rather, in finding Christ, we find holiness. In his presence, we're drawn to him. And in his presence, we, in, in one sense, we just end up absorbing the holiness of Christ because we are found in him before the Father. At this point, I'd like to invite David to come up, and he sat in the back, so I'm going to ramble for a little bit. <laughs> just kidding. Um, David's going to share about personal worship and our relationship with God. Thanks. Thanks.
1: When we look at worship um, i found one definition that i feel like kind of helps us because worship can be this kind of ambiguous word that we can use in a lot of different ways Um, and so when i talk about worship we're going to talk about um, what it means to express one's allegiance or regard for a deity so specifically for us what does it mean for us to express our allegiance and our regard for god and the way and we live this out through the way Um, That we express that we belong to Christ and the way that we love and fear him And uh, to look at worship. I wanted to go back to another passage that we've looked at Somewhat recently in John uh, chapter 4 where Jesus encounters the woman at the well Um, And we're just going to read a couple verses in John 4 verse 21 Uh, if you recall the story Jesus is in Samaria and he's at a well and he encounters this Samaritan woman and first he's not expected to be having a conversation with her because of their ethnic diversity Um, it was not common for them to talk especially for him to talk to a woman and a woman who um, had the social standing that this woman had and in the midst of their conversation she kind of questions him on what is true worship because the samaritans worshipped on one mountain and the jews worshipped in jerusalem and jesus responds to her in verse 21 So we have these two ideas. We must worship in spirit and in truth. So what what does this mean? Um, Ken Gangle describes these nuances, these two things, in ways that I found helpful. He says that to worship in spirit is to worship from a heart that acknowledges God and his sovereignty over our lives. So to worship in spirit deals with our will, our affections, our desires, our longings. And to worship in truth is to worship honestly, biblically, and centered on Christ. So we break these two down, that we worship both with our head and with our heart. Um, But this isn't all that we worship with. If we look at Romans 12, verse 1, Paul calls for believers to present their bodies as living sacrifices, which he states, this is your spiritual worship. So we worship from our heart, our affections, our longings, our will. We worship through our head, um, through truth, um, being biblically and centered on Christ. And we also worship with our hands. We worship through what we do and how we live our lives. Um, so if we think about these three things in together, worship really starts in our heart. It starts with a changed heart that is fixated on Christ. And it must that worship then must flow through the filter of our head, of our minds, to make sure that it's guided into truth and that our heart doesn't leave us astray because the Bible does say that the heart is deceivingly wicked and it can easily lead us astray. But then it doesn't just stop there. We don't just change what you know we feel in our heart and what we think in our head but it also leads us into what we do so with the theme of equipping we want to see how has christ equipped us to worship him with our heart our head and our hands Um, and when i think of the idea of being equipped um, I know we're going to look at the the armor of God, and that's um, a bunch of things that equi- a soldier is equipped with to go into battle. Um, it's I don't really go to battle. I don't have equipment. When I am equipped, I usually equip myself with a bunch of tools. Um, and if I would have had my mind on straight this morning, I would have remembered to grab my tool belt, and we would have gone through a couple of tools that I have. Um, But this week, I I had to do a job, and so I had to go change some doorknobs, and so I thought, what tools will I need? And I equipped myself with a drill and a screwdriver, and I got there, and I worked, and I realized I was ill-equipped because the old doorknob wasn't put in properly, and I actually needed a chisel. Great thing about a flathead screwdriver, it's a a makeshift chisel, (laughs) Um, and so I, you know, had a a poor chisel there and it got the job done the door knobs were installed and everyone was happy um so when we think of equipping it's it's the idea of putting tools into our tool belt but we also have to use them and so when we think about equipping for worship we want to look at what are some of the tools that god has given us to worship so starting with the heart the primary tool that god has given us is a changed heart Um, he has given us a renewed heart and the only way that we can truly worship god is if we have a renewed heart it is impossible for someone who has not been had their heart regenerated by Christ to truly worship him. But beyond that, um, a change of heart is not the only thing that God has equipped us with. He has provided us with ways that we can stir our affections for him. Um, primarily we often think of scripture and reading the Bible, and I, we're going to talk about those a lot this year. But these aren't the only tools. God has also given us things like music and art and nature and hobbies and our fellowship with one another. These are all things that we can do to stir our affections for Christ as we you know, maybe go on a beautiful walk and examine the sunrise and, and think of God and it stirs our affections for him. Or some of us may be musically inclined and there's certain music where the lyrics and the movement, it, it stirs our heart to love God more. Um, so these are things, tools that God has given us um, and we need, to, we need to use tools like this to stir our affections and just not kind of let our tools rust in the bucket. Um, and we also need to be aware that a lot of these tools are tools that the world is using to stir our affections for the things of the world. And so we must examine what tools are we using to stir our affections and what are they stirring our affections for? Um, now as we move from the, the heart into the head, we think that God has also equipped us with tools for engaging our mind in worship, to know truth and to know him, and primarily he's given us his word. This enables us to know him and how he's called us to live, but he's also given us tools of reason, experience, and tradition, and these are all very helpful things um, that can help us to know God, um, to, to, to look for truth and to seek truth. Um, but we always have to keep these subject under scripture. And these tools can kind of be dangerous tools. Um, think of like a power saw. You know, if somebody uses a power saw the wrong way. You can easily cut off a finger. You can, you can hurt yourself. Um, but just because somebody at one point cut off their finger with a power saw doesn't mean we don't use power saw still. Um, So just because reason or tradition have been used before to steer the church astray doesn't mean that we necessarily avoid them But we always make sure that they're subject to Christ because often we can use reason and it's dangerous because it helps us It makes us think that we know truth, but really we're being led astray So we cannot neglect these things but at the same point we cannot elevate them above Christ these tools uh, to help us worship with our head and finally if we look at our hands Christ has equipped us to worship him through our actions by providing us with various avenues with uh, through which we live out our worship. This can be in our own private lives, um, within our families, churches, in our communities, that we are able to walk in the truth that God has given us. So as Nick's already mentioned a handful of times, I, I probably won't be the last one to mention things like New Year's resolutions or this is a great time to examine your life. Um, so I want to I want to throw out a couple of questions um, for you to reflect on at the beginning of the year and maybe set some goals um, or even just a trajectory for this upcoming year. So I want to encourage you to ask, what things can I be doing to stir my affections for God? That's the first question. What can I be doing to stir my affections for God? Second, how can I grow in my understanding of God this year? And third, where and how can I more effectively worship and serve through my actions? So through these actions, this may be something like joining a D group, and yes, Nick, this was in my notes before you <laughs> threw that out there. Um, but it it may be some other way of getting to know others in the church, so you can live out life together and worship together through your actions. It may be developing evangelistic relationships with your neighbors um, or your your coworkers. Or it might be something like seeking an accountability partner to deal with a habit or a sin or an addiction in your life that you've allowed to persist. Um, So whatever it is, it must flow out of a heart that desires to grow closer to God, to love him with all of our heart, all of our minds, and all of our souls with all of our strength with everything we do. God has equipped us with these tools for worship, and we need to use the tools. So I'm not sure. Nathan, are you next? I'll hand it off to Nathan now.
2: So now I'm going to be looking at fellowship fellowship can be defined as a shared participation within a community God created us as social beings. We are created in the image of God Uh, The one true God is a triune God. I'm not going to dive into the Trinity. It's something that's beyond our comprehension But within the Trinity you have God the Father Jesus the Son and the Holy Spirit and they have fellowship with one another and God created us in his image. And so we are created with a desire for fellowship. In Genesis 2, we see God creates Eve. He creates a suitable helper for Adam who was not found among all the livestock and the birds of the heavens. So he creates Eve to come alongside him. Even the most introverted person desires fellowship as a socially awkward engineer. Social situations are very out of I, I kind of clam up in large groups i like the smaller groups you get me in a large group of people and i clam up maybe it's just me but the greeting time used to be extremely uncomfortable for me and i would stand there at my seat and i would just sit there and wait for people to come to me and hope okay hopefully nobody comes up and says hi but i desired fellowship and i knew that god calls us to fellowship and so several years ago i set out of course numbers person said out a goal. i want to say hi to three people And then a little bit later, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to set another goal. I want to say hi to three different people because I'm saying hi to the same three people every week. Or I'm saying hi to the three people that are sitting in front of me and calling it good. So, but God calls us to fellowship. Then you have, on the other end, you have your extroverted person, like my brother-in-law, who I dearly love, but is wired very differently. Me, He is very energized in those large group settings. And he comes home, and he's so energized. and He'll tell me stories, and he's like, Oh, I was in this group of people and I met this person, and da 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 da. And I'm sitting there, and my initial thought is, You're in this group of people that you don't know. That sounds very uncomfortable, unnerving. But he's excited by it and he'll tell these stories about it. But God created us as social beings in a desire for fellowship, a desire for community, to be participants within the community. We are made in his image. As a body of believers, God equips each of us with different gifts to use within the context of fellowship with other believers. Without fellowship with one another, we as a church body in Christ are not complete. Romans 12, we're going to look at Romans 12:3 through 8, starting in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly if service in our serving the one who teaches in his teaching the one who exhorts in his exhortation the one who contributes in generosity the one who leads with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness this of course is not the only place where paul uses the human body as a metaphor for the uh, body of christ i think first corinthians chapter 12 for instance here, but Paul's point here is simple. God has equipped each of us with gifts that we are to use in fellowship with one another, to build one another up, or as David said, to use tools in our tool belt, to work together in Christ, to stir our affections for God, as David said. In using our gifts, we are to use them in a humble spirit out of love, as Paul says, recognizing that our gifts, they were given to us by God, and they're used to build one another up. Notice that Paul's call for unity within the context of the fellowship in verses four and five. If I had a gigantic right leg that say was four foot long and I had a size four shoe on that leg and then I had a regular size leg with a size 18 shoe, I wouldn't be able to do much very well. I wouldn't be able to get around very well. I'd be tripping over everything. I couldn't sit. I couldn't stand. My back would hurt cause I'm always kind of standing funny and awkward. I'd hobble around tripping over everything and the list would go on. Likewise, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. It is through the shared participation within the community of believers that we are able to utilize the gifts that God has given us. The church has several opportunities to encourage fellowship. I know it's been mentioned twice already. Let's just make it three for three here. We have D group, But there's also, of course, the Sunday morning service, including Sunday school and post-conversation after Sunday women's ministry, morning-evening prayer, work days, etc. Fellowship within the body of Christ, though, is not to be exclusively done through church-organized activities. Fellowship can happen through meals together at one another's homes, through gathering together, through serving together, helping one another out when those are in need. Matthew 18:20 says, For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47 talks about the fellowship of the early believers after the day of Pentecost. It's a familiar passage for many of you. If it isn't familiar, I would encourage you to read it this afternoon. Acts chapter 2 verses 42 through 47. In this passage, we see the apostles teaching the believers, um, the believers breaking bread together, they're praying together, praising God together, sharing their possessions going to the temple together, and just in general, doing life together. I think it's important to note that the passage mentions twice the early church breaking bread together. The first is likely in reference to the Lord's Supper, as well as sharing a meal together after church. Then the second is actually sharing a meal together in their home, it's likely the way the, the Greek translates. Food is a wonderful way to bring people together and to break conversational tension, especially if you're socially awkward, such as myself. This is the reason why all of our D groups have a meal. There's a purpose for that, not to mention food is good. So this is not to say the early church was perfect by any means. In fact, it was pretty messed up in a lot of ways. However, there are areas where the early church does set the bar pretty high for us. And one such way was in how they fellowshiped with one another and how they did life together. God equips us as a body to share life together. Teaching, prayer, meeting together, worshiping God together in the Lord's Supper, all aspects today's church can and should emulate. Tim is now going to share how we are equipped by God for ministry.
3: I was quite late getting up here, did we thank Nathan and Christina for their hard work on our floor yesterday and the day before? Yes they've worked really hard thank you for your leadership and efforts feels a little like the finishing touch even though it's not so we we actually are a neat clean organized people if you haven't gathered that yet so i'll try to land the plane here over the next several minutes as i focus on um god equipping us for ministry and um, we can see in matthew 28 that's kind of the the standard Uh, Passage that's used the final recorded words of Christ when he's with his disciples and he says "Um, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you now much of what we've talked about so far has to do with um, um, our own life and us being equipped and we talked a little bit about fellowship, that's as a group equipping us for fellowship and worship and all those things. Well, all of these things still uh, stand true for equipping for ministry. Sometimes it seems like we set that aside, and I, have, I always have a bone to pick with things, you know me. Um, but in the spheres of home, church, and life, there's all kinds of ministry, ministry opportunities. And as we are at the end of the year, maybe perhaps as we're talking about resolutions, it's a good time to look at our lives and see what we're doing, what we're involved in, and what maybe should change or not change in and how well we're fit for that. One thing I would like to say that I find annoying is a lot of verbiage that's out there in evangelicalism about equipping and training and releasing people into ministry. There's a lot of these catchphrases and bywords and things that I know what people are saying and I know what people are after. but. A lot of it is so intense that it begins to lean, in my view, on the side of, of man's effort and not following God. I'll give you two quick examples because I don't I don't want to go long here. Is I so much believe that God does the equipping and we don't have to overfocus on methods, programs, organizations, and structures. We really can trust the Spirit. For example, in a little way, four people are speaking this morning. We did not get together after we decided what the four topics were going to be and pencil everything and try to say the same thing to reinforce it. You could do that, but we don't do that. And what Because what tends to happen is anyway, the Spirit brings it together, and you already hear that. I mean, I think Nick said something that that Ross had written, and then David followed with the same thing. Because we really believe the Spirit will ultimately drive what we do in ministry in our personal lives and in our corporate lives. So I think that's the umbrella of which we want to think about things in the coming year when we talk about ministry. Um, Another example of what what I don't like is I spoke at a national medical conference last year and it was so tightly structured I basically had to memorize like my whole presentation of like 20 minutes, which is really a lot of memorization, especially at my, it was extremely tense, and it was extremely difficult because the whole thing was supposed to be perfectly packaged so every person would follow and it would all be painted nicely. Well, you can do that if you want, but that's not, that's not my style, and I don't think that's the style of our church because oftentimes that doesn't leave room for something unusual or different or really spirit-led to happen in the moment and so that's an example of what I think is not ultimately helpful if we're really trying to be led by the Spirit as we're being equipped in ministry because how many of you would say I'm sure all of you would say that most things in your life that have come out well in ministry probably weren't what you planned right you probably planned this but God moved here or he took it to a different level than you thought even possible because our ability to cast vision and see and make things happen is pretty weak overall. What we need to do is step out and follow and then take another step out. Um, But we will talk about, I like what David said, we will mention some tools. We need to have some tools. We're human. We need to have something concrete to move forward with in ministry. So we're not saying that's not the case. As I thought about this I was looking at Matthew 14 And this is another thing maybe you could look at, um, but I saw it more fully, uh, the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 as an idea of how ministry can be. Now here we're talking about ministry to others. You know, Jesus carefully mentored his disciples. He didn't take novices and just throw them out there, right? Sometimes the church does that. We take people, oh, you're a new Christian, go ahead and teach this men's group or do that. We have to be careful. But it talks about Jesus withdrawing to a desolate place. What happened? The crowds follow him. There's all these people. He ministers all day. They're tired. And then he instructs the disciples to um, go ahead and feed them. They say, well, Jesus, let him go eat. He says, no, you feed him. So we have the story of feeding the 5,000. Well, then immediately after that story is the story of Jesus walking on the water. It says, Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side where he dismissed the crowds And after he had dismissed the crowds he went up on the mountain as they went out on the boat When evening came he was there alone So this is the same day they're tired they're ready to be done right So where are they at now they're on the boat and what happens the storm And they panic Jesus comes down he sees them he walks out on the water another great story same day then in verse 34 it says and when they crossed over they came to land at Gennesaret and when the men of the place recognized him they called all around and who were brought to him and implored him to minister to them and as many as touched it were made well the same day I was tired eight hours ago in this story and I think it's a good piece of humility we need to have that in ministry it's sometimes tiring and it takes commitment and we have to follow Christ because he's working and he's moving and he's doing things sometimes that surprise us or we don't know what's coming and things don't always turn out the way they thought they would and as I thought about well how do we how do we be quote successful in ministry how do we do what we're supposed to do and I'm not going to read it all for you, but I would recommend that we consider Colossians 3, chapter 1, the whole, t- the whole chapter about putting on of the new man. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. And it follows in there talking about put to death all the immorality that's in our life, especially our pre-Christ life, those things maybe we drag in. Seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. It is this way that we will be, quote, successful, unquote, in ministry. Evangelicalism is rife with people failing because of their sin in ministry. That's the undoing. The undoing isn't, oh, they didn't have the right program, oh, they didn't have new carpet in the building, oh, they didn't have men's groups that made men sit around and paint their toenails or whatever some of these men's groups do, I don't know. But it's not, it's not what we do, it's who we are that will give us successful ministry. You'll remember that one, won't you? If you know me, I make, I make, I overspeak to make a point, so you remember it. But no, I'm fully convinced after many, many years doing ministry and many mistakes I we have made, that if we are becoming the new man in Christ as the foundation of everything we talk about this year, in the tools for ministry and like david talked about i loved that using reason experience tradition we have all those things here we we fold these in to our thinking about our ministry both as people to people and to our community we pull these things in but if we do not put on the new man and we are not the right people and we are oversell we are overwhelmed with sin and distraction nothing we can do with those tools will prosper for the kingdom.